Welcome to Talaterra, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today, my guest is Jim Folsom. Jim is the creator and host of Botany in Context, a fun and fascinating channel on TikTok that brings attention to the plants we engage with and rely on every day. Jim is a teacher, a gardener, a botanist, and a cook who enjoys talking about plants. He is also the director emeritus of the Botanical Gardens at the Huntington Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California. Whether you're a teacher wanting to incorporate more botanical themes into your lessons, or are a casual gardener who just simply loves plants, this episode is for you. Let's join the conversation. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show today. It is a Thrilled to spend time with you again, and it was really exciting for me to learn about your TikTok channel, and I didn't know that you had one. I think it's a clever use of, of TikTok, and you know, there is a lot, of, a lot of examples about how TikTok can be used in environmental education, and I just love the way that you use it. So thank you so much for being here today. At Botany in Context is the name of your channel. How did you decide to use TikTok and how did you decide on the format? Yeah, well, well, as you can say, see from looking at my numbers, the fact that I'm using TikTok doesn't mean that I am uh, a standard TikTok um, creator because I'm still linger in the lower numbers with 3,600 followers instead of 3.6 million followers. But what happened was I had written, a, I still write, a big book. It's so big, and it's in Apple Books, and it's called, it's called A Botanical Reader. And what it was was a compilation of things I was interested in, and things I had written over the years, and I rewrote. Well, the Apple Reader got huge. It's over a 1,000 pages. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's free. It's an Apple Reader. But a lot of people couldn't get to it because it's only an Apple Reader. So I thought, well, I need to transfer it to a new medium. So I was thinking one day I would put it in a blog. And so I, I got, I started looking at different website creators and, and the one called WordPress just showed up on my computer one day. And I thought, well, I will explore this. And before I knew it, I was signing up to have a WordPress website. I didn't even understand I was doing that. All of a sudden they were asking me for money and a name. And I was, I was thought, oh my God, what am I going to name? And I want a name that, that doesn't have a bunch of numbers in it. And so I thought, well, it's about botany in context. So I named it botany in context and I got that URL. And so I, what I did was I started loading chunks of the book into that website and reformatting them. And of course, with, like with you with Squadcast, all of a sudden I'm learning skills that I had never, ever had to deal with and calling people and, you know, calling the people at WordPress and saying, how do I make this happen? And so I started building that. 
and continued to add to it and built a whole bunch of blogs in that that I thought were kind of fun, at least fun to me. I don't know if anybody cares, but it allowed me to organize my thoughts. So then my daughter is in social media marketing and she came home one day and she was talking to me about TikTok and she showed me a bunch of them. Well, then Deb and I both, I retired and we moved to Missouri as we live in Florida right now. We live in Florida, but we have a place in Missouri and we were there and we got COVID from the movers. So we're in, we're sitting there for three weeks and the TV's not turned on and there's the books are in boxes. There's a, there's 1500 shelf feet of books is still in boxes because we're moving. And, and so I took my cell phone and started watching TikTok and I became a TikTok addict and I was watching it for hours because really we couldn't do much. We were really sick. So I started looking at all the plant people and I thought, you know, the voices on the plant channels and the cooking channels are about personalities. That's what they're, it's TikTok's all about personalities. And that's how you get a lot of readers, uh, viewers. You, you are a personality. And I decided what I would be is I would be the quiet personality, not in the foreground, that, that I would talk about plants just like I talk about plants to volunteers or groups I walk through the garden. And I decided that someone on TikTok needed to just present the story of plants from the viewpoint of, of botany, but how they relate to everyday life. And so what TikTok has become, and I didn't really quite plan it this way, but I planned from the start that I would not be visually present in the TikToks. It's all about the plant. Well, that's not a very TikTok-y thing, first off. Secondly, what evolved is that TikTok has become like a video log of my daily life. I walk out and I see a plant and here's what I'm thinking. So TikTok has become three things for me. One, it's become a way to connect to a new audience. Um, two, it has become a way to just relate everyday thoughts about plants from the viewpoint of a botanist. And three, it's become an archive of information that I hope to ponder for other kinds of interpretations. So that's a long-winded way to say that's how I fell into TikTok. What I love about your channel is that it is about everyday uh, botany. In environmental education, there's, of course, a lot of emphasis, a lot of focus on on all the ways you encounter nature in every day. But your format, your approach is so casual and so inviting. It really has that that feel of of every day. You know, it isn't an intentional lesson. It isn't an intentional message or or, or something that is, you well, know, pre-planned. And that's are, what I love about you it. You are so generous because basically it is totally ad hoc. Yeah. You know, <laughs> And the worst part is, I think out of, I've published over around a thousand, okay, of these little videos. And of those thousand, I have edited like five. So, so I am just lazy. I do not, and I don't, um, in that regard, I don't want to spend my evening doing what I could do learning more about those tools and cutting out the little us and the pauses, um, which most people would do. And, and I would do if I were a little bit more organized, but it, if I ever start doing that, then I will be embarrassed about all the old ones and I'll have to take them down. So I'm, 
I stick to my guns in that it is totally casual and it, it catches me sometimes in moments. Look at this pretty mint and look how gorgeous the buds are. They almost look like a chandelier or something. They're so sculpted the way they unfurl. But look at that great flower structure and the leaves. It's a mint, of course. Look at the decussate leaf arrangement, the leaves are ovate with large dentations. It's called cat's whiskers, orthosiphon. I will have to say that the, the payback for that is that, is that sometimes I have to refilm something a couple of times just because I said something stupid or wrong, because I say it and I think that's not right. <laughs> I have to refilm the whole thing. <laughs> No, I wouldn't change a thing. And editing, editing can just take over. And you don't, yeah, I love your approach. It is, it is very casual. Like I said, it's like going on a walk with you. And when I discovered it earlier this summer, it was just a nice way to learn, learn something about plants. And so I love the the topics that you cover from what you see on the side of the road to something that you're keying out to, there's a recent post about the market about corn a series about fruits and vegetables. <laughs> I mean, there's so much there. And something that I saw that I did not know about was the um, the obedient plant and how you can move the, oh, the flower so and the inflorescence. And that was yeah. wonderful. And yeah. that's a plant from my childhood because we were, at that point, we were at my brother-in-law, uh, Rick and Jan. We were at their garden and Jan does the garden and she is... She's a naturalist and Rick's a naturalist and um, she's more of a geologist. Rick is a, is a, a biology a naturalist that works, worked for his whole life for the state of New Jersey in um, the Pine Barrens. And so they, they both are interested in plants. And, and that plant I knew as a child and we called it obedient plant. It wasn't until many years later that I understood why we called it obedient plant. And that is because... It, it's just this funny thing. The flowers kind of are in these ranks, but if you push it to the side, it'll just stay there. And so those, those, that was a neat morning because Rick took me to a bunch of, took Deb and me to a bunch of bogs and places that we had, we would never know about. And, and so it's really, it's fun when you're in a situation like at the Huntington, when I go back there, there's just thousands of stories around me. And, and it, it's an embarrassment of riches. Oh, another thing that was exciting to me was the flower that is pollinated by a gecko. <laughs> is that cool? That is wild. <laughs> oh, well, and, and see, I had I had written a blog on that because everything about that flower is unbelievable. Curator of tropical plants at the Huntington, Dylan Hannon, has a knack for growing almost anything and certainly has a comprehensive knowledge of tropical plants, particularly the most curious and rare. One of the plants he was able to get many years ago, get the seed to, is a fairly recently discovered species that's now in the trade. And it, its name means island bell. The genus is Nizacodon. And it's Nizacodon and it's named after the island of Mauritius, to which it is endemic. 
and it's one of a few species on that island known for the most particular characteristic or, or behavior. Here's the flower. It's in the Campanulaceae, which is nice because it looks like a bell, right? But what is amazing about it is if you look inside the flower, see that red color? Let me see if I can find one that's not as perturbed. Yeah. The nectar is red. Do you see those nectar glands at the base? They make droplets of red nectar. And it was discovered that it is pollinated by geckos. Uh, here's one that's intact. Is that miraculous? So the, look at the size of the flower. It's a big. What's most fun, of course, is not to know what you're looking at and to turn the flower up and see these beautiful jello red, you know, that clear jello red color. Jello red drops, and then when you shake it, they drop down. And it's one of those things, and I think this is true of most plants. The more you look into the science of it, the more phenomenal it is. You, you think out, you, you start out thinking, that's neat. And the more you learn about it, the neater it is. It, it, knowledge does not destroy the wonder. Knowledge magnifies the wonder. And so then you find out that here's this island, and in this weird little place, geckos have become pollinators of like 15 or 20 different kinds of plants. Well, when you've got lizard pollination, you've got a totally different set of, of what we call syndrome points there, where, they, where everything, I mean, when butterflies make sense, bats make sense, hummingbirds make sense, but what is associated with lizard pollination? Really neat, really, really fun. Yeah, no, that was exciting to see. I did not know that. But the crazy, I'm going to break, I'm going to hog your time here. The, you know, absolutely. <laughs> Go the, ahead. The, the great thing was, then I started saying, well, why did they name it Nizocodon? And what the heck does that mean? And so then I started, I always look up the etymology because the etymology does two things. One, it makes it easier to remember the name. If you understand where the name came from, it's a lot easier to remember. But two, it tells you something about what the person who named it was thinking. Like, why did they choose that name? Who did they name it for? What patron was that? But Nizocodon, and it took a while because I couldn't easily get the roots to work out, but I finally found out that codon refers to bells. And a lot of the Campanulaceae have codon on them. It has to do with the bell shape of the flower. And Niso is island. So it's the island bell. And and all of a sudden, the name, instead of being this weird name, like, what does that mean? It, it rings beautifully, you know. Oh, it's the island bell. How neat. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. You have taught botany to, for many, many years, and to many, many people, and to the public. And what do you wish people knew about plants? Well, you know, the simplest terms. I, I think... To, I think plants are a great biological model, a simple model, something, I, I, some people even wince at this, but I have no hesitation in taking a plant apart or cutting it up. I'm not at all of the opinion that plants have real emotions or sentiments. Plants do respond to things, but I don't feel bad about cutting a plant up or taking it apart. We cook them all the time and tear them up and still consider ourselves vegetarians, right? But if you do that, then you can gain awareness of other forms of life. 
And and the the simplest thing I wish people understood was the cellular basis of life. It is amazing to think that I'm sitting here and I'm not only made of made of 30 trillion cells, right? 30 trillion cells cooperating somehow or another, each of which has to maintain its its own little balance to stay alive. But then somehow or another, making me function or misfunction in other ways, I host another 30 to 100 trillion bacterial cells. So, so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, trying to think and do all these things. And all of these functions are working and they're working because each of those cells is independently alive at some level independent and at another level totally organized. And, and if people understood that, I don't think people even know what a cell is. And, I, and, and at the basic level, I wish there were a few things people understood about themselves and about the world around them. And plants provide a wonderful laboratory to learn that, a wonderful learning place. Because, I mean, even I don't like to dissect frogs and, and cats and all that stuff we had to do in college. And I'm, I'm squeamish about blood and stuff like that. I, 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 I'm just not into, I don't even eat really raw meat, you know. <laughs> so, so, so plants are just a great place. And if you can understand the plant life around you, you can understand many things. You can understand more about your own life, what life is. Um, one thing you can understand that I think is lost in the modern world totally is the the evolution and the civilizing nature of our own species. I spend a lot of time, every time I encounter something weird or something new, I, I will sometimes just sit and think, how did that feel to someone 10,000 years ago? I was sitting on the beach. We, we live on an island and it's really pretty. It's gorgeous. And I wish I could show you outside. We sit 12 feet above the ground in our house and it feels like we live in a tree house. There are pine trees all around me and I'm looking into the trees. It's, it's nice, okay? But I was on the beach the other day and I was just sitting there and thought, you know, this has been settled. This was settled by indigenous peoples at least 8,000 years ago. And somebody might've been sitting on that beach, looking at those clouds, looking at the ocean. What were their thoughts? How, they had to think it was beautiful. They can't, I can't imagine someone sitting there and not thinking how overwhelming nature is and how beautiful it is. So but what other thoughts did they have? And then at night, you know, we've lost the night sky, but here it's gorgeous and, and it's clear. And those people didn't, they didn't have electric lights. They didn't have any of that stuff. They spent a lot more time looking at the night sky and wondering about it and how beautiful it was. And, and, Day, night meant things differently to them. But the same is true of plants. I'm, I'm interested in everything about how plants, like there are trees right around our house that were gashed for turpentine. We forget that at one time, those, those are called naval stores. And at one time, all those ships were big, leaky, nasty, rotting um, wooden structures. They had to constantly be recalked with with water impervious substances taken from trees. They were built from trees. It took X number of trees to make a big ship, you know? 
and and then all that cordage. Think of the sails and the rope, and they're all plant materials. The, the early sails, believe it or not, were made of flax because cotton was cotton's later in in mass production. So someone had to make all that linen to make those sails. And then you go into the art gallery and Blue Boy is painted on a linen fabric. And so people, it just, I go back and I think plants are still important today as precursors, as raw materials. But at one time, everybody knew that. You know, everybody somehow or other benefited from um, the fibers and the materials that plants bring to us. And I, and I wish people understood more of how their lives, you know, what is that phrase from the um, marketing world? Um, the fabric of our lives. You know, plants truly are the fabric of our lives. And I wish people gave them more consideration. How might that be accomplished, do you think, in today's world? Besides your wonderful TikTok channel. <laughs> I, I, the, the, I will, there is nothing. I mean, one of the fallouts of COVID has been, there have been two almost opposing fallouts that are both valid. One is we've learned better how to use things like this, uh, media um, to communicate and um, um, to teach and to uh, expound. But the other is we've realized how important it is that firsthand experience. And to me, the most important way for people to learn these things is to go out and touch plants and be among plants, to grow plants. I, I put out, I, you haven't seen it yet, but I got an, um, I worked with a, a wonderful artist named Ed Lum. I don't know if you know of Ed. Ed does sort of poster work and he is so talented. Um, he turns out things that reminiscent of the WPA and Ed and I just turned out a pamphlet on the tale of the bean, and and it's it's for kids to see if if we can cause kids to be interested in just planting a bean, just plant a seed. Oh my gosh, the the magic of planting a seed and watching it grow—not for every kid, but some some kids will find that um, compelling, and it will change their life. So I, I'm I'm hoping as much as I appreciate all of the potential of this virtual world, boy, there's nothing like hands-on experience. Well, this channel that you've created here is a wealth of information, and I can imagine so many people using it in so many different ways. Uh, I will absolutely, you know, definitely have links to it and links to specific episodes, the specific posts in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, and it's just exciting to see and I just I had to share it. I had to let people know about it. And so thank you, you know, thank you so much for for stopping very, by to talk about it. You're very generous. You're very <laughs> you're very kind and generous. Um, I, I do it because first off, it's not like I need something to do. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm I so enjoyed teaching the volunteers at those since the groups like the botanical artists. I mean, I I didn't do those classes and training sessions because I had to, because I could have avoided all of that. I did mm -hmm. it because there's, 
Um, it's, it's a really fun thing. It's a fun thing to, to come to understand something a little bit and then to relate that to somebody else and see them interested and excited. And what I learned in college, of course, is if you get to the point on a topic that you can explain it well to somebody else, then you've learned it better. So the best way to learn something yourself is, is to pass it on to somebody else in an intelligible and cogent way. And all of a sudden, your own personal understanding has grown. So don't just be a learner, be a teacher, because that will constantly reinform you as to your understanding of the world around you. You have embarked on a new chapter of your life, having served 36 years at the Huntington Art Museum and Botanical Gardens. When you look over your shoulder back at the trail you've left behind, what do you see? Well, you know, I, I see a lot of unfinished business. Um, I'm glad Nicole. Jim is referring to Nicole Cavender, the current director of the Botanical Gardens at the Huntington. Has taken in hand the idea of, of making the gardens activities more professional and how they're approached and are more organized and more um, regular. Because I'm, a, I, I, I'm not going to say I shoot from the hip, but... When I got to the garden, I inherited a remarkable garden. Just, just as a, as the the head of the garden, and a remarkable audience of people, and a remarkable community. A lot of gardens in the country are out in smaller populated places, and they really work hard to get an audience. Well, at the Huntington in Los Angeles County. It, it, you can just reach out and the audience is there. There's, there are audiences that need you. There are audiences that just want to be around. There are audiences that are out, out for edutainment. There are audiences that are themselves educators, and they're hoping to increase their understanding of the world around them. So the nice thing that it's almost scary and daunting is that when you're in L.A. County, it's what, 8 million people in the population, you just... You're overwhelmed with audiences. So picking and choosing how you serve those audiences to increase diversity of audience, to reach out to as many people, underserved audiences, um, specialized audiences, people who will most benefit from what you have to offer, that's almost almost too much. I mean, but what I decided when I arrived there and I talked to the trustees and, is that the Huntington Collection given where it was and what we had and the history we had, really could be one of the great teaching collections in the world. I don't know if you've had the chance to see the glass flowers at Harvard. One of the, one of the world's botanical wonders, okay, is the glass flowers at Harvard University. Everyone should make a trip there. Back in the, it's in my timeline. I've got a, a hundred page timeline of botanical history in my book and a copied parts of it in my website. Um, back in the 19th century, Harvard's uh, botanists hired German glassblowers who made beautiful, um, realistic animals, bugs. And they made, I think there's 200 life-signed specimens that, of plants that are so realistic in glass that you would be, sometimes you're stunned to realize that they're not living. They're, they are unbelievable. 
Well, they went to all that effort to create a collection that they could teach in the winter because it was cold in the heart of the winter. And I've been there in December and January, so I know that is true. At the Huntington, we have all that stuff alive, real, living. And so I said, let's make this into the greatest teaching garden we can as a primary goal. And that meant building the facilities we built, which we have two teaching laboratories. I think you've been in those. We have, um, we built the botanical center. We built a conservatory that is all about learning about plants and experimenting with plants. We, we, the last thing I was able to put together was a teaching garden that is a vegetable garden. And um, Nicole has bought into that full bore and she's moving ahead and we've gotten some endowments to support that. And the, the, Part of the message of the teaching garden is that the plants support us in many regards, but for food mainly. And 200 different kinds of plants feed the world. And I, I, my goal was to have all those 200 there and talk about them and let people see them. So what I think I left behind was the framework and, and the structure and the physical resources and quite a bit of endowment that means that the garden's activities are underwritten to some extent. Special programs have endowments that weren't there. The whole Chinese garden is endowed. So that I hope what I left behind was a platform that, that Nicole and, and her successors can continue to build on and that the Huntington gardens will be a beacon and a place where people can come and get excited about plants, learn about plants, learn about the culture that revolves around plants and become more sympathetic with um, the natural world. Because in the end, you know, the, the critical thing right now is we're destroying the world around us. And that's, that's the, the, the horrible thing is that the world that you and I were born into is not the world that succeeding generations inherit. It, it, it's stripped of, of, um, natural biodiversity, it's um, stripped of natural areas. And the only way to reverse that to some extent or halt it is if people of the world find plants and nature important and will, will buy into changing their lifestyles to allow the others to live also. So I'm, I'm hoping that that the garden in the end becomes a place that people learn to love nature. Um, love it enough to learn something about it. Love it enough to be willing to alter some of how they live and behave um, such that it doesn't destroy the rest of the world. What's next for you? Oh, well, um, well I'm still not, I mean, I'm retired officially, but we're still moving. We still have a container of debris, French material, that we have to move out. I'm, I'm too much of a collector and a hoarder. We've got way too much material possessions. And I still have research to finish. We still have dear friends there and even family. So we'll be back to California if no, for no other reason than to try to, to disarticulate our stuff from the rest. The... The place we live now is is a former life because we all live many lives. I just happened to have a 36-year life at the Huntington. But before that, I grew up in Alabama. 
and then I was went to college at Auburn, and then I went into the Air Force as lieutenant. Um, those are all different lives to me, different books, chapters. Then I went to Vanderbilt for my master's, and when I was there, I did my master's research in the forest right near this island. So I spent three summers working on native orchids here near Apalachicola. And and that's unfinished work. I mean, I did that work, but there's still a lot more. So I'm I'm sort of going back. Maybe I'm working my way back. Wouldn't it be funny if I kind of worked my way back through Indiana and everything and, and ended up back where I was, sort of a, a kind of a symmetrical life, and then you just kind of um, pass away where you started. But there's so much to learn about. The, the wonderful thing about being in the plants is you will never run out of fascinating things to explore, um, to interpret, uh, to relate to people, just to sit and drop your jaw and say, wow, that's so neat. So, so I'm hoping that I can contribute some um, to the understanding of the plants in this area. I've gotten myself already on two different committees to pay attention to native plants and wildflowers. And we have tree frogs, like every morning there are tree frogs crawling over the windows. You know, we get, we got 75 inches of rain this year. Oh my goodness. It's it's a very, (laughs) very ecologically active wet world. And, and so there's plenty here. There's plenty here. And what's really fun is um, having gained the knowledge of being in California and that habitat. And then coming back to the southeastern and having lived, I lived in Colombia, I lived in Costa Rica, I lived in Panama. So how do I explain those different climates and ecologies to people in context of where I am now? So there's a lot. There's no shortage. Plenty to do as long as the brain holds out. Yeah, plenty to do. And then we have so much more to learn from you. And I, and and I, that's ex, that's exciting, and that's that's also comforting because you are really an, an excellent teacher. Well, you you talk about plants so easily, so naturally, and you, you make them so easy to understand. And from you know photosynthesis to morphological structures, I mean everything is. It's always been one big, fascinating story when you tell it. So, so thank you for that. And I'm really excited to be able to point people in the direction of botany and context on TikTok. Okay. I, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. And they can ask questions and people do ask questions. And, and sometimes I'll go back and refilm something or make a new yeah. um, addendum because it was clear that, that there was more to be said or something to be explained or something to be clear. To learn more about Botany in Context, see the links in the show notes. Here you'll find a link to Jim's channel on TikTok and a link to Jim's segment about the flower that is pollinated by a gecko. You'll find a link to Jim's botanical reader in Apple Books and a link to a conversation that Jim had about why plants and gardens matter. If you have a gardener, botanist, or plant enthusiast in your life, please share this episode with them. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time.
Calatera is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.